Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. On this episode of The Most Notorious Podcast, one of the most heinous, racist acts of terror in American history, the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. And so the, this mob, of this large mob of whites, uh, basically attacked Greenwood. They're met with fierce resistance at first from Obi Man and the others, uh, but they were just eventually overrun. And then what happened after that is this mob just went from house to house, business to business, uh, burning looting, uh, and murdering most everyone who got in their way. Hello all, this is Eric Rivenis with The Most Notorious Podcast. What you're about to hear is an interview that I did over a month ago. I have been saving it for this week because June 1st signifies the 99th anniversary of these horrific events. And I wanted to honor it as near to the anniversary as I could. I have to admit, when I read this book, I was reduced to tears. This is about the full-scale decimation of a vibrant and peaceful African-American community in 1921 Tulsa, Oklahoma. This interview will give you an idea of the horror, but in order to understand the full narrative, you need to read about it, research it, in more detail on your own. This is just a tiny portion of the overall story and a tragic and deadly lesson, if there ever was one, on the evils of racism. Let's begin. It is with great pleasure that I introduce my guest, Tim Madigan. He spent a 30-year career working at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram and has written for other prominent papers and magazines, including the Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, and Reader's Digest. He is here to speak about his critically acclaimed book, The Burning, Massacre, Destruction, and the Tulsa Race Riot of 1921. Great to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Eric. I'm a, I notice you're from Minnesota, and I'm a Minnesota boy myself. I was born and raised in a little town called Crookston, and a lot of my family still lives in the city, so uh, I'm very familiar with your part of the world. 
Oh, very cool. I think I read somewhere that you were a, a Gophers fan at some point. Uh, I was when I was a kid, yeah. yeah. Sure. I, mean, uh, I remember the last time, I think the last time the Gophers won the Big Ten, uh, 1968 or something like that. So anyway, yeah, I'm... Uh, uh, I, I, my, my sports allegiances have kind of shifted to Texas now, but I, you know, I did grow up with the Twins, Vikings, uh, North Stars, Gophers, you know, so I, like I said, I know I, I'm well acquainted with that part of the world. Well, well I, I live in the past with this podcast. <laughs> so, so for, as far as I'm concerned, the Gophers football team are national champions. If, if we're talking, uh, 1934, right. 1935 right. anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this is is this must have been a really intense topic to tackle um when did you first begin to research this and, and when you did did you find people were aware of this tragedy or was it a relatively hidden history for oklahoma well i you know to say that it was a relatively hidden history is probably the, the understatement of the last century uh the uh it started for me um in I think it was probably sometime in 1999. I was working at the Fort Worth paper and my boss came by my desk and handed me a, a, a wire story from the Associated Press about something, uh, uh, concerning something called the Tulsa Race Riot Commission. And uh, it was a fairly short story and I read it, but the last few paragraphs were, or said that, uh, in, in the, Early summer of 1921, a mob of 10,000 people basically uh, destroyed one of the most prominent African-American uh, communities in the country, and up to 300 people were killed, almost all of them black. And I looked at her and I thought, I said, what in the world? This can't be true. If, if something this terrible had happened, surely we would know about it. We would have known about it. And she said, I've, I've had the same reaction. So she sent me to Tulsa. And uh, and at the time, a lot of the survivors were still alive. And I wrote a newspaper piece for my paper under the, under the headline of Tulsa's Terrible Secret. I mean, this happened. It was probably the most uh, horrible example of, of racial violence in our nation's history, and one of the, one of the worst one of the worst examples of domestic terrorism. But no one knew about it. Even people who moved to Tulsa ten years later. Uh, would have never known about it as one of the greatest examples of cultural, willful cultural amnesia, I think, in our history. And um, and so uh, uh, the newspaper piece led to a book opportunity where I got to explore this at book length. And not only that, what happened in Tulsa, but placing Tulsa in the context of what was going on in the nation more broadly at the time, the Jim Crow era. And what I learned was is that what happened then was perfectly consistent with that horrible, uh, horrible era in our history. Right, yeah. The book is intense uh, because what happened was intense in the worst way possible. But before we get to this mass destruction uh, of this part of Tulsa and, and all of the accompanying deaths, I, I would love it if you could set the scene for us. What life was like for the residents of the Greenwood District in 1921? Well, by 1921, Tulsa uh, was was known across the country as uh, it was called the Black Wall Street, 
It was known, known, but known especially among African American people across the country as one of the most prosperous uh, black communities uh, in the nation at the time. And the, and the way it got that way was, uh, by and large, was that at some point after the turn of the century, they struck oil near Tulsa, and the sleepy little village became a, kind of a bustling oil capital almost overnight. And uh, you know, so people skyscrapers were built and. White, White Tulsa, you know, was a very, very wealthy place. And around this time, enterprising black people, African Americans, uh, uh, realized that there was opportunities for them too. So basically what they did was, you know, they realized that White Tulsa needed chauffeurs and nannies and gardeners and, and, uh, people domestic. And so, Thousands of people would go across the tracks to work uh, from the black community to the white community, and then they would come back across the tracks with all these with sizable uh, sizable incomes. And this professional class sprang up in Tulsa to basically accommodate these people. There were doctors, there were lawyers, there were movie theaters, there were hotels, there were restaurants. You know, and it was it was really an amazing, really an amazing community. Um, and the, so that's what was going on. That uh, certainly had its issues, and that's what was going on in Tulsa um, in 1921. Was this thriving black community was uh, happening there? And you know, and I think that part of the problem was is that whites at that time didn't um, didn't take kindly to to uh, blacks who were prospering. Uh, that uh, I think that there's a lot of a lot of sense at the time that blacks should belong in their belong in their place, and so there was this, and not only in Tulsa but across the United States, uh, there was this kind of smoldering, overt racism that was happening. That, and uh, as I think I said, I wrote in the book that Tulsa um, was an example of that, and was kind of dry kindling, just waiting for a match. In the years uh, just following the First World War, there were a lot of horrific crimes committed against African-Americans. I've done an episode on the Duluth lynchings. Yes. Well, I mean, that whole period. And uh, one of the things that I one of the things that I learned when I started working on the book and uh, and tried to place Tulsa in a broader context was was that what happened in Tulsa? Uh, was completely consistent with other things that were going on in our country at the time. And I, I found out about uh, Duluth, and I found out about Chicago, and I found out about St. Louis. And and so racial violence was just a fact of life in our country at the time, not to mention the more, the more egregious aspects of Jim Crow, where black people uh, couldn't couldn't drink in the same water fountain or eat in the same restaurants or, or ride in the same railway cars. And so that was uh, it was an, it was an important thing for me to learn that you know the only thing that really set Tulsa apart was the scope of it. Um, I don't think anything so terrible happened in any one place, but uh, it was it was really consistent with the other things that were happening uh, in our nation at the time, and which continued to happen, and unfortunately still continue to happen in this country. In nineteen twenty. Uh, 21, how predominant was the, the Ku Klux Klan in Tulsa? Well, it was, some, it was something, uh, somewhat of a matter of speculation as to what the Klan's r- actual role was in Tulsa. But, uh, uh, you know, there's very, you know, strong um, circumstantial evidence that uh, they played a big role. Uh, and just an example, just an example of, 
to give you a sense of the of the way it was at the time that uh the uh the, the first real blockbuster movie um uh came out in 1917 or 1918 it was called Birth of a Nation and it was uh basically a story about the modern clan and it and it evoked or invoked all the most vile racial stereotypes you can possibly imagine it was just a horrible thing it was done by this filmmaker called D.W. Griffith and and uh, it was just a horrible thing but it was endorsed by and supported by President Woodrow Wilson uh, the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, the most popular uh, Halloween costume at the University of Chicago during this time were Klan robes, uh, and and so it was it was just a it was a it was a horrible time, um, and and you know and so the Klan definitely had infiltrated Tulsa. To what degree they directly uh, helped orchestrate or contributed to what happened in Tulsa is anybody's guess, but it stands to reason that. Uh, and given everything else, everything else that was going on in the country, that they were they were big players in what happened. Yeah, there were there were some other violent events by vigilante groups in Tulsa in the years leading up to the massacre. Um, yeah, one mm-hmm. of those was against some IWW workers. Uh, right. In in an event they called the the Tulsa Tar Party. Yeah, I was just you know I was just talking to the descendant of one of the Tulsa people, and he and he mentioned that too that you know back in those days you know though. The predominant, much more, many more black people were lynched and and suffered uh, violence than anybody else. I mean, that was not restrict, was not restricted to just blacks. I mean, this was a white union guy who was strung up um, outside of Tulsa just a few weeks before uh, before this all happened, and uh, it just wasn't a, the nineteen the early nineteen twenties were not a pleasant time in our history, and that's something that. Uh, that's something that I think that too few of us uh, can appreciate because it's not something that's taught in our schools. Right. So there are a lot of compelling figures who lived in the Greenwood community at the time. Were there any people that especially uh, stuck out for you when you were writing this, people that you really wanted to get right? Well, um, you know, it's been a while since uh, since I published the book, Uh there's but uh, there, there's a couple of people. There's a physician by the name of A.C. Jackson, who is renowned across the nation. He's an African American guy who lived in lived in Greenwood and was familiar with the Mayo brothers and uh, and was reputed to be you know, one of the finest physicians, black or white, in the country at the time. His father was a leading figure in in in, in Greenwood. Uh, and was very proud of the fact that his son had become a physician, and and they believed that they believed that because you know they were educated, because they're making contributions to society to both white and black people, that the racial violence that were bef- that was befalling so many other black people at the time would spare them, that somehow or another the the white racists would respect them, would spare them, had proved to be. Uh, pretty erroneous uh, assumption. The other, uh, the other guy that most comes to mind is this guy by the name of O.B. Mann, and he mentioned, he mentioned World War One, and that that really plays a big role in, in everything that happened because O.B. Mann uh, was this big strapping guy, and who went off as so many African African American young, young men did uh, to fight for the United States in World War One. 
And there was an assumption that if they went to, they went and they fought and they bled and they died for their country, that once they returned, that life was going to be different for them in the United States. But what they found was when the war was over and they came back, that if anything, um, uh, life, life for blacks had gotten worse. Um, the bigotry and hatred and racism and violence, if anything, had gotten worse. And so, but now these guys were, were veterans. They had fought, they were, they were trained in the army, and, and more and more of them were of the attitude that, uh, that if the whites or white mobs um, uh, had any thought of inflicting kind of racial violence on them, that they weren't going to go quietly, that they would, that they would put up a fight. And, and that's, that, that is led by OB Mann and others like him, other veterans like him. Um, that is, uh, that is what happened in Tulsa really. Is that, uh, is that Tulsa, uh, uh, Black Tulsa would not put up for, with what was about to happen to, to a young man, uh, who was about to be lynched, uh, by a white mob. Right, yeah. So as you mentioned, there was a lot of simmering under the surface hatred, racism already. But the catalyst in all of this centered around a young man named Dick Rowland and his relationship with a young woman named Sarah Page. Can, can you talk about him and how he found himself in the predicament that would serve as a spark for the later massacre? Well, uh, yeah, sure. And, uh, one of the things I think uh, is important to remember, not only about Dick Rowland's story, but, you know, as 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 is the case with so many things about Tulsa, what happened there was typical of what was happening in other places. And one is that it was very dangerous uh, for a black man to have any kind of a relationship with a white woman at the time. And so so much as you know, greeting a white woman on the street, or I mean, it could have been anything. Um, it, it just was, you know, the reasons for this go go pretty deep, and we don't have time to talk about them now. Um, but Dick Rowland was a shoeshine boy making a lot of money, uh, working outside a hotel or a business, businesses in downtown, white Tulsa downtown. Uh, it was typical of, you know, the people who profited from white Tulsa and then he would go back across the tracks and spend his money in Greenwood. Uh, he, he, it seems that he had a relationship of some sort with this young girl named Sarah Page and, uh, who was an elevator operator. And then one day on the elevator, something happened. Uh, maybe the elevator jerked or, you know, it was, everyone seemed to eventually conclude that whatever happened was somewhat innocuous. That there wasn't any real assault that took place. Um, but anyway, Sarah Page starts screaming assault, starts screaming rape. And Dick, uh, Dick Rowland disappears back into Tulsa, which is a very kind of, dangerous situation to be in, you know, when a white young white girl is making that kind of an accusation. But anyway, Roland is arrested and the police investigate uh, the case and they had come to believe that uh, there was really no merit to what this girl was alleging. Uh, but Roland was being held in the, in the, in the jail uh, at the top of the uh, run by the sheriff and uh, the county courthouse. Um, before the things that this thing can finally get sorted out, uh, there was a newspaper war going on uh, between two papers in Tulsa. 
And one of the surest ways to get people stirred up and to sell papers was to try to incite racial animosities. And so the editor of one of the Tulsa papers, you know, seized upon this story and sensationalized it and and ran a front page editorial in, in, the, in the last few days of May 1921 that ran under the headline of Two Lynch Negro Tonight. Next thing you know, there are hundreds of people surrounding the courthouse, if not to participate in the lynch mob, at least to observe it. Word got back, you know, in the meantime, the cop- copies of the paper got back to Greenwood, and, and Obi Mann read it, and a lot of the other leaders in Greenwood read it. And next thing you know, you know, their, their attitude was, it ain't happening here. So they established, they armed themselves, established a convoy, um, to basically, uh, confront this mob. And the, the white sheriff said, boys, I've got this under control. Nothing's going to happen to Dick Rowland. Um, he's going to be protected. Just go back to Greenwood. I think this happened a couple of times until at, at one point, you know, there was an altercation between one of the, a white person near the courthouse and one of the, one of the blacks who had come to the courthouse. A gun was fired. Next thing you know, all hell broke loose. There was shooting from both sides and, uh, and that was the beginning of it. The, uh, the blacks eventually fell back across the tracks. Uh, and then overnight, this mob of up to, uh, estimated at 10,000 people was, was organized and dispersed to various places around Greenwood. And then early in the morning, around five o'clock in the morning, there was a whistle and, and then the attack began. And so the, this mob of, this large mob of whites, uh, basically attacked Greenwood. They're met with fierce resistance at first from Obi Man and the others. Uh, but they were just eventually overrun. And then what happened after that is this mob just went from house to house, business to business. Uh, burning, looting, uh, and murdering most everyone who got in their way. And, uh, by the end of the, by the end of it, uh, uh, I, I say that, uh, Greenwood, the photographs of Greenwood resemble Hiroshima and Nagasaki after the, after, uh, uh, after the atom bomb. The only, the only buildings that were really left standing uh, were the outhouses because the mob didn't want to waste their kerosene on, on outhouses. But everything else was, everything else was pretty much gone. And, and there are so many stories, uh, of just the most horrifying cold-blooded murder of men, women, and children, um, uh, that took, that took place over this time. So it was really was, uh, it really was a pretty, ama- a pretty amazing thing. Yeah. There are a lot of moving emotional stories, as you've said. Can, can you tell an account or two that that are especially powerful for you? Well, I mean, there was one of the stories I remember is there being an old couple who were an old an old black couple who was who were praying uh, when the mob came in, and uh, and they, they would just be shot down in cold blood. And then their homes looted and their and their place burned. Um, A.C. Jackson, the physician that uh, that I mentioned earlier, uh, was shot down in cold blood. And uh, you know, and the other thing about it is there's a system to it, where and 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 also uh, 
airplanes were used. I mean, incendiaries were being dropped on these fleeing black people from the air. There was a system to it where the mob would go in, often kill whoever was would remain inside, often, again, men, women, and children. And then after that, then the women, the white women would come behind them with pillowcases and loot, take the dresses, take the silver, take the, you know, loot, everything that, that they could get their hands on before the place was set to flame. And the story goes that a lot of Tulsa residents years later would see a white woman wearing their dress or see a, see a white woman in Tulsa wearing their, wearing the, wearing the suit that they're going to wear to the prom, uh, the Greenwood prom, you know, and so the, uh, the humiliation and the criminality of this is really is really pretty breathtaking. When I first went to Tulsa, I don't think that there are any survivors still alive, but there were several when I first went to Tulsa around the year 2000. And you know, and I remember talking to some of these people who lived through this, and one of them was a guy by the name of George Monroe, who was like a boy of seven or eight. When the mob came in, his father wasn't at home at the time, but his his sister grabbed him and pulled him under a bed. And one of the mobsters stepped on George's hand, and the sister threw his mouth over George's or threw threw her hand over George's mouth to keep him from screaming. Because if they would have been found, and God knows, God only knows what would happen. Uh, but he told me that story, you know, twenty years ago. You know, as if it were yesterday. And you, you multiply that story times thousands and thousands and thousands. Another, another older person told me that, you know, one morning as her, 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 her mother wakes up, wakes her up and gets her out of bed and said, we need to go because the white folks are killing the, killing the black people. So the next thing you know, that she's part of this refugee, uh, line of refugees fleeing away from, the, the white mob, and as they're doing it, they're, these these airplanes are circling overhead, and bullets are landing around them. Um, so it's just story after story after story that stayed in the hearts and minds and souls of these people all these years, and and for many of the years, until in the last couple of decades, you know, they they carried these stories around them basically in secret because no one was no one was talking about it. Um, and so, unfortunately, before you know, some of these people passed on. At least the world, through my book and some others, uh, uh, the world became aware of, of what had happened there. While reading how this whole terrible thing unfolded, uh, much of it reminded me of a, of a battle from World War One: uh, machine guns set up on hills, firing down into Greenwood, mm-hmm. biplanes mm-hmm. strafing the street with bullets. Snipers set up in church bell towers. Right. Um, it's it's just insane when you read it. It really is. It, it, it's almost it's hard to it's hard to believe. Really, um, it's hard to believe that anything so horrible can happen, and it's probably harder to believe that that that, that this atrocity would have been would have happened, and then have been kept secret for generations and generations and generations. One account that was uh, particularly moving to me, um, among many, um, came from a boy who who was white and lived on the very edge of Greenwood. Mm-hmm, right. 
Yes, right. His side of the street was white, and the side of the street directly across from his was black. And he played with three black friends every day after school, three little boys. And he remembered with utter horror what happened to them that night. He watched from across the street as, as men entered their home. He heard the shots, and then they set the house on fire. I remember, yeah, I remember that story that this 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 young white boy kept kept waiting for his friends, his black friends, to come out of his house, and and they never did. I, uh, that's another you know another example that I hadn't thought of in a while. But I mean, that's just kind of the way it was uh, uh, over and over and over again. Another account that that really horrified me had to do with a, a well-known beggar in downtown Tulsa. Um, he was African American. He he was blind. He had no legs. Right. And likely he hadn't even heard the news about what was happening. Uh, he was in a different part of town. And a few of these roaming vigilantes grabbed him in the chaos, tied him to the back of their car, and just began driving around uh, town, dragging him from behind, right? right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Until he, he died. That's what it was like. Um, and, um, and the other thing about it, too, is though... Some of this is conjecture. Uh, the evidence, circumstantial evidence at least, seems pretty strong that that uh, that the white Tulsa Police Department, the Tulsa City Council, the, the powers that be in Tulsa were very much involved in this. Um, and and this was endorsed and perhaps even organized by by law enforcement. And you know, one of the things that happened was is as soon as this began, uh, the whites basically started looting, you know, started arming themselves and uh, going to the hardware store and getting every gun they can get their hands on. And uh, and I think a lot of this, you know, again, at the uh, under the auspices of, of the police department and, and official Tulsa. Yeah, that reminds me of something I wanted to ask you. Um, you debate in the book whether this was simply a blind mob or something more of an organized attack. Right. But the whistle that goes off at 5.04 a.m. that signals a charge into the neighborhood really does suggest that someone was giving orders. Well, I think that, you know, again, in the in the days, weeks, and months, and years afterwards, uh, White Tulsa clamped down on this pretty, pretty tightly. But just look, you know, it, it just was too systematic. You mentioned the machine guns on the hill and and the use of the planes and and mobs being assembled at strategic places and and the on the bond you know that is just wasn't just a spontaneous mob these people were being led by you know and uh, you know that it was uh, it was uh, it went in it reached into the, the very highest levels of, of Tulsa at the time there's really not there's really no doubt about that i don't think in anybody's minds right it's just so interesting. Um, there were men on both sides that had fought just a couple of years earlier together right. against the Germans in the war. Right. Yeah. It's uh, so. I mean. I mean. I just uh, again, the horror of it is 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 uh, is really kind of hard to believe. The fact that uh, you could have moved to Tulsa five years later and never known this had happened. And I've heard once once the book was published. And when I'd go on the radio or whatnot, I'd be hearing from people who said, I lived in Tulsa all my life, and until I read your book, I'd, I'd never known this, was happen this had happened. I think 
the the larger issue, however, is uh, is that you know I, I, I said I grew up in Minnesota, and uh, I grew up in uh, a little town and, and a farming community and in the, the northwest part of the state. And obviously there weren't a lot of black people in the place where I grew up. Um, and uh, so then, you know, after one thing led to another and ended up down in Texas and I started living and working around people of, of different races. And But I still was completely kind of oblivious to the history of things like Tulsa. And when I had an opportunity to... Um, you know, because kind of by chance, because my editor handed me this story, um, to educate myself, think my life really changed. And I, one of the one of my favorite stories from this time was uh, my my first trip to Tulsa, uh, uh, my first reporting trip to Tulsa. At the end of the day, uh, I thought my job was done, and I was out at out to dinner with a guy by the name of Don Ross, who's a state representative. Uh, representing Greenwood, who was more responsible than anyone for for organizing the Tulsa Race Riot Commission in the, Oklahoma, in the Oklahoma Legislature. Anyway, he and I were out to dinner, and uh, I was just trying to make conversation uh, in this Chinese, quiet Chinese restaurant in Tulsa, and I asked him a question like, you know, Don, tell me, what was it like for black people after the Civil War? And he raised his fist up, and slammed his table loud enough so most of the other people in the restaurant looked at us. And he said, and you're one of the educated whites. He said, if we can't count on you to know our story, who can we count on? And and from that time on and for a long time afterwards, his name for me was Ignorant White Boy. But he had a point. And so especially after, uh, especially after, uh, I went to work researching the book, uh, and I started to learn about Duluth, and I started to learn about Chicago and St. Louis and uh, everything in the lynchings and everything that was going on in the country. And realizing that Tulsa was completely consistent with that time, um, it really changed the way I looked at the world, and uh, it changed the way I looked at, at other people. And my my theory is is that. Once and if we can all really take a hard look at the history, um, it will change the way we view other people. And that has certainly been the case uh, in my life. And, you know, this and, and I, I think that's particularly important to remember that this continues to be relevant today. Um, you know, we look at what's happening with the pandemic and we look at the people who are being most severely affected by it. Uh, African Americans and minorities are the ones who are being hit by this much, much harder than in any other community because um, they're underserved. And the reason they're underserved is due largely to the same kind of same kind of dynamics that, you know, um, that had their origins in what happened in Tulsa. And so I just think that it's so important for us to learn, learn the story, not just as a matter of history. Um, but as a matter of uh, understanding where we are now as a people today and uh, and how these issues continue to kind of torment us. And it's a, it's a hard thing to do. I mean, I, I applaud you for taking on this topic because it's not pretty to look at. And as you've said, the book is very intense. 
but I think that uh, coming to terms with this part of our history is essential for us to kind of move forward in, in a healing and, and more unified way in the future. Yes, for sure. So I wanted to ask you about the aftermath of all of this. Um, many were killed, some were captured, but a lot of people just fled as well through farm fields, etc. Can, can you talk about where they went and, and whether any came back? Well, uh, you know, I, it, it is hard to know exactly. Uh, I think that thousands of people left Greenwood never to return. And Dick Rowland being one of them, the irony is that he ended up surviving, and I think he moved to Kansas City. In the days after this happened, you know, the New York Times and all the major white papers from across the country came in and wrote about it in a pretty straightforward fashion. And at the time, the powers of being Tulsa, uh, the Republic stance was was pretty contrite. But the minute that the, the national press left, then, then things changed quickly. And in fact, there was a move from, you know, among Tulsans to try to confiscate the, the property where Greenwood had, had existed and appropriate that for white Tulsa. Uh, uh, lawyers, black lawyers went to court and kept that from happening. And so a lot of what, what had existed in Greenwood Avenue prior to it, it was rebuilt uh, in fairly short order. Um, but there was really no, there was really no, uh, you know, obviously it was it was never the same. And, uh, you know, and I think that uh, one of the reasons why the secret was so efficiently kept was that white Tulsa was afraid of the statute of limitations for murder and black Tulsa was ashamed and worried that it was going to happen again. And so there were whispers of it, uh, but obviously the uh, uh, the nature of Greenwood prior to this uh, was never to be seen again. So Greenwood today was it total destruction? Did did any building survive? What does it look like now? Well, if you took a you know you would see it you would see it uh, largely as it might have looked around that time. However, the buildings that exist there now are basically replicas of those that uh, that were destroyed. So, uh, what's really kind of interesting, um, there was a the official death count was much lower than the reality. Um, I think everybody exists or uh, agrees about that. Um, but you know, one of the one of the things that was kind of seared into the memory of people who experienced this was seeing truck after truck loaded with African-American bodies stacked like cordwood on the back of these trucks uh, driven to parts unknown, and that there was uh, an assumption uh, that that some in, in and around Tulsa there were there were one or more mass graves and one of the um, one of the most recent developments is uh, the mayor of Tulsa, a Republican guy, uh, basically has uh, initiated an, an effort to do scientific inquiries to try to locate these mass graves. And just uh, before the pandemic hit, there was news out of Tulsa that there, uh, scientists seem to have identified uh, areas that seem consistent with mass graves. And so at some point, they're going to start excavating. 
Um, so, and again, it's it's the search for the truth. I really applaud the Tulsa mayor for doing this, and um, and um, you know, and 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 next year is the hundredth anniversary of, of all this, and and so I think it's going to be in the news uh, in the in the news even more, and I think that's a good thing. I would imagine there are uh, plaques, uh, a, a memorial. There is a yeah, I mean there's there's a, a, something called the Greenwood Cultural Center. There are memorials. Uh, the the state uh, after the Tulsa Race Right Commission finished its uh, its business, there was some scholarships established, and and so I mean the the presence. If you go to Tulsa today, it's been a few years since I've been there, but if you go to Tulsa today, obviously it's you know it's. Uh, it's prominently commemorated uh, in Greenwood as to what happened in 1921. For those listeners who don't know, HBO had a recent series called The Watchmen. It's kind of a a superhero, anti-hero show, but it relied heavily on that history for its story arc for the season. Right, right, yeah. Um, Did did you watch it? And uh, if so, what did you think about it? Well, you know, frankly, I did not watch it. Uh, I don't, I don't get HBO as they say, uh, but I started uh, immediately started hearing about it uh, because the opening sequence, the opening sequence of the of the series was uh, the massacre, the Tulsa race massacre, and people assumed that, uh, given the horrible nature of what they were seeing, that it was fiction, and uh, the director and producers of the film were. You know, in, in, in interviews during you know, during the launch of this HBO series, are saying no, it's not fiction. This really happened, and in fact, um, there's the source material. There, the source material that they used for writing these sequences was was my book, and they were kind enough to mention that in a lot of these interviews. Uh, and so that has rekindled. Uh, a lot of interest in the book and, and, and we've done a second printing of it. And, and I do think that hopefully uh, in the next year, as we go through the anniversary, that I'll be doing a lot more of this and a lot uh, talking about what happened in Tulsa a lot more in the next, uh, in the next uh, period of time to come. Forgive me if you answered this already. Um, I, I think you might have, but what was the, the official death toll and do you believe the numbers? I think that the official toll was, and I, and the specific numbers escape me, but I think the official toll was maybe 60, 50, 60, 70. And I think that most historians and most people who know about this uh, put the death toll at, at at least 300, maybe more. Goodness. Well, I really appreciate your time today. You have a website. Can you tell my listeners about it? Best place to get your books. Yeah, I mean, uh, the website is timmadigan.net, um, and uh, the best place to, to find the burning is on Amazon. There's a, 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 a second edition that's recently been published, and, uh, and that's the best place to find it. And, you know, and I'm, like I said, I think the world will be hearing once we uh, overcome our current challenges uh, next year, uh, uh, I think that uh, the world will be hearing a lot more about what happened in Tulsa, and I'm, I think that I think that's a good thing. And I appreciate uh, very much appreciate your interest in it too, Eric. Absolutely. Uh, I just wanted to ask you one more question, uh, sure. a bit off topic. You wrote a book about your friendship with Fred Rogers, uh, Mister Rogers. 
Would you summarize that? Well, no, sure. I mean, uh, I met him. Uh, uh, the book is called I'm Proud of You, My Friendship with Fred Rogers. And uh, I met him in 1995 uh, uh, through through a news, another newspaper story. And uh, and one thing led to another. Uh, uh, you know, I went to I went to Pittsburgh to profile him in the fall of 1995, and he and I became good friends. Uh, I came to appreciate that uh, he was uh, one of our civilization's greatest human beings, and uh, I was fortunate enough that uh, he had mentored me through some very difficult times in my life. And so the so the, the, the that book is the story of our friendship and. Uh, basically, it shines a light on his his human greatness and uh, and uh, a lot of the lessons that can be derived from that. It's much different than the Tulsa book, I have to say. <laughs> I can only imagine. Well, thank you. This has been great. Well, thank you, Eric. And, uh, you know, again, thank you for your interest. Uh, I hope to talk to you again sometime. Yes, me too. Again, I have been speaking to Tim Madigan. He is the author of... The Burning, Massacre, Destruction, and the Tulsa Race Riot of 1921. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts.